Father, thank you again for the opportunity to be together, to discuss, and share, and we continually ask for your Holy Spirit to guide and direct our thoughts, our minds, our mouths, our attitudes, and thank you for your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Alrighty, we're going to get into Babylon today, but I want to do a little bit of review from uh, yesterday, uh, <clears throat> and we're still on the concept of liberty of conscience based on justification by faith in Christ alone. I was going to mention something. I don't have the statements here right now, but in our discussion now, I was thinking of something that the Protestants were all united on two points. One was justification by faith in Christ alone. The other was on uh, the, the prophecy of Daniel, and, and especially Daniel, but some of Revelation also. Uh, Luther when Luther preached on justification, or he was comparing what he was doing to men like Wakeuf and Huss and some of these men, he said these men, and all of them, he said these men were trying to deal with reformation of character within the Church of Rome, and he was trying to do the same thing also. But he said, I grabbed the goose by the neck. I present the doctrine of justification by faith. And, uh, and that was the major difference. They all taught that, but not in the way that Luther did. And I think it was because of the liberty of conscience uh, aspect, because the people were free uh, to take a stand for God, either for or against him. And uh, the first words, or not the first words out of uh, Luther's mouth, but when he's in the Diet of Worms, the last thing he said, when he says, I can do no other, just before that, he said, for conscience sake, <laughs> So he had already been studying justification by faith. He didn't understand it fully, but he evidently was seeing some connections there. And so his last plea in defense was he was not going to give in because of liberty of conscience. Right. Now, you going to say something? Or? Well, I was yeah. just thinking, you know, he had tried so desperately to find peace with God. Yes. The of man. Yes. And it was, it was, it, he realized how weak man is. And yeah. when he finally found peace with God, that yes. Yeah. You know, there's a good study on, on uh, the weakness of Luther and Loyola. They both had similar experiences, desperate for acceptance with God. Loyola threw out conscience. <laughs> he said, I'm not going to listen to this anymore. And he turned completely away from it. He believed that he became sinless. I believe that everybody's thinking. And that's the departure, departure between Luther and, and Loyola. Loyola, of course, was the one engineered the Counter-Reformation, and it's still active today. Uh, have you ever heard of spiritual, edu education, uh, spiritual formation? This has been used in Protestant circles. This came directly from him during his uh, adoration of Mary during the times when he was seeking for God. This has penetrated in some cases within Adventism, and it is. Uh, so Luther then, by listening to conscience, continued to listen to the voice of God and through the Word. Through the Word, yeah. Loyola got rid of the voice of God by getting rid of conscience. Exactly, and he, yeah, and his, uh, he had he had tremendous visions. He claims that he saw God face to face. Uh, Mary supposedly talked to him many times, and. Uh, in fact, he, he credits her with uh, uh, spiritual formation, some of these other things. So we know where the source of that comes from. You know, but, you, but go ahead. Do you have some material on that spiritual formation? Yes. 
<laughs> in fact, I did a study. In fact, if you want, let's see, I don't know. Yes, uh, I was asked to do a paper at Andrews um, on uh, um, the emerging church. And I went back into history to deal with it. If you want a copy of it, I'd be glad to send, send it to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, it's, uh, I've had some people get mad at me about it, but all I did was uh, spread out the, the facts of the case, you know. And uh, I had one man, when I, pre when I presented it, I think everyone in the group, there must be about 16 or so of us uh, uh, scholars, I don't claim, I'm not claiming myself a scholar, but I meet with them. And all of them accepted what I had to say, except one guy, he was a friend of mine. And he came on Sabbath, we were on Sabbath, and I think it was three times he came to me. He said, there's two people you need to take out of that. <clears throat> and, uh, and I said, why? I said, I, he said, you brought these in, but it was wrong. And I said, no, all I did was quote what they had to say. One was the, the one who began this in Protestantism in the 1960s. And another was a woman that Jones re re referenced in 1893, I believe it was, a holiness woman. And uh, <clears throat> these two uh, contributed to, the, to, to this thing. And he said, you've got, to get, you've, got, you've got to take those out. And then he wanted me to meet with some people. And I said, well, he, he thought that I should go and talk to them. I said, no, you set it up and I'll come. But <laughs> I'm not going to push my way in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally he told me, he says, I read those books. And he said, I got a tremendous blessing out of them. And I said, oh, no, because they're in that uh, formation situation. You know, so. And I haven't talked to him since then. But, uh, and he's a guy who doesn't get uptight very often, but he was uptight with me. So. <laughs> Anyhow, let's, let's go on. Um, <clears throat> yesterday, we considered the feudal system uh, <clears throat> from the peasants to the knights to the nobles to the kings and to the pope. This is what um, the... Middle Ages was, this is a structure. And this is the structure that politicians in the United States, as well as the papacy, are trying to bring us back to. This whole uh, global globalization, this is where it's going to end up. Uh, right now it's on hold for a while, but, but uh, it's going to, we're going to come back to that, I'm sure. Uh, we also talked about yesterday justification by faith and its relationship to liberty of conscience and the establishment of... Uh, of uh, other things. First, justification by faith, then liberty of conscience, then the priesthood of all believers, then free markets, economics. The word uh, economics came out of the Reformation. They didn't use it, as, as I understand, before that time. And then capitalism came out of that. Now, capitalism has been in the pits, there's no doubt about it, but uh, it came out of the Reformation, I mean, or extended out of the Reformation, and from that, you have a constitutional government. And that, that was Holland, especially um, England and the United States. Holland has had turn, turned back, and England has been, been turning back. But I was thinking of another, um, uh, it, may, it may come to me later uh, on that. But we talked about if you, if you reject liberty of conscience, you reject justification by faith. If you reject justification by faith, you reject liberty of conscience. And that, I think it can be boiled down to, that, to those two pr uh, principles. We also talked about Queen Elizabeth. She died in 1603. Uh, she was a Protestant. And when her, it'd be a cousin, I believe, Mary, uh, Bloody Mary was her cousin. She was queen for a while. And some claim that she was murdered, but uh, 
she had cancer of the uterus and, and died. And uh, Elizabeth evidently didn't know anything about that. She was under a tree reading, and she was a tremendous scholar. She was studying Hebrew and Greek under the tree. <laughs> and she was afraid that they were going to uh, execute her because she was next in line to be on the throne. And she evidently didn't hear about the death of her cousin, but they came and said, you are the next, uh, you're, you're going to be our next queen. And so she, she uh, became a Protestant, or she was a Protestant, and she, many, there were many attempts to take her life, but they couldn't do it. And just, I think it was in about 1603 when she died, I was, during that year previous to that, uh, there was a movement by Jesuits to eliminate her, even at that time. She was very shaky, and they knew she was going to die, but they wanted to get rid of her uh, even sooner. But she died in 1603, and then came James, James I. And uh, he, uh, we talked about three, the Church of England, the um, Calvinists, or the Puritan, Puritans were Calvinists, and um, the Catholic. They were all trying to bring a Bible out to control the people. And the Catholics were coming out with a new version of the Douay Reims. And they felt that if they could get that first, get it out there, and then uh, England would become a Catholic nation in time, and they would be able to control the people with that, with that Bible. The Puritans were pushing for what we know today as the King James Version. And that started in 1604. Now the king got, got behind it. That was the only thing he liked about the Puritans. He despised them because he knew them in Scotland. <laughs> Most of them were legalists. He didn't want anything to do with them. But, uh, but he was not a saint by any means. But he sided with them, and they got the manuscripts that came out of, uh, well, they would have come out of uh, a couple hundred years before that, out of Greece. And uh, uh, instead of going to the Latin, they decided they would, they would uh, translate from the Greek. And uh, that's, <clears throat> that's what, what they did. Then this was the, the work started on the manuscripts for the King James in 1604 to be an English version. Now, what? Oh, 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 okay, okay. Uh, so um, then in 1605, and we looked at this yesterday, so I won't go into a lot of it, but in 1605, there was a movement by, there were about five or six Jesuits, that they were all Catholic uh, subjects of, uh, of the king. But they didn't like him. They decided they were going to blow the king and his family to smithereens. They had 36 barrels of gunpowder underneath the house of, where, of the parliament where they were going to meet. And someone tipped, uh, tipped the government off and they caught this guy, his name is Guy Fox, and, uh, or Folk, I guess it is. And um, all of them were ex executed except at least three Jesuit priests who escaped, but there were three that were, were caught and were executed. Here's a drawing of, these are, the, these are not the priests, these are the people that were involved in it, directly involved in it. This guy was the one who started it, uh, Guy Fox, he's got the Spanish name there, but his name was Guy Fox in English, He's the one, he was a demolition expert in, uh, with the Catholics fighting against the Protestants in Holland. And so when he came back, he, he was recruited 
to deal with the powder. And he was sitting there ready to uh, uh, light the thing. He was already, they had it figured out he would start the fire that would go to the powder and he would get out of there quickly and get into, the, into a boat on the Thames River and, and go to the other side and be safe. But before he could light the fuse, I think it was the day before, there were uh, some centuries went through, they got the word that something was going on. And they walked through there and they saw the gunpowder. It was covered up with boards and a bunch of stuff, you know. They didn't, they didn't touch anything. They waited till the next day. They, they knew the day somehow. They, they knew what was going on. And when Fox was sitting there, or folks, when he was sitting there, they grabbed him. He, he fought like a demon, but they, they nailed him and <laughs> took, him to the, took him to the jail. But no, no, he wasn't. No, he was a he was he was a military man. No, he wasn't a Jesuit. None of these were Jesuits. I, I don't. I've only got one picture of one of the men, of the Jesuits. I had uh, had sketches of them, but I don't know what's happened to them. But were the Jesuits involved? In yes, yes. Or did they design the plot? That's what we think. There, I, I, yet just yesterday, I read a strong article by a Jesuit, written recently. Um, uh, changing history, <laughs> rewriting history. And, and he said none of these men were involved in it. They heard a confession, and, and, uh, and that was the only, only part they had in this. And that, but it's not so. This man, I'll show it to you. I think I've got a picture of him here. But anyhow, here's, here's, uh, here's uh, Guy Fawkes here. They're sitting in, <laughs> under, the, under the parliament, ready to blow it up. And then these guys, uh, well, yeah, there's the powder kings. There were 36 of them. And, but they came in and caught him, and he fought ferociously, but, but uh, couldn't get away. Today in England, they're still celebrating uh, uh, Guy Fawkes' night on November, uh, I think it's, yeah, November 5. And this is taken from 2017. And they go through all the motions of what happened 400 years ago. You know? wow. <laughs> and uh, they still have, they have bonfires out, uh, and they, they uh, burn uh, folks in Evagy, uh, same same thing. Some of them don't even know what's going on, but, <laughs> but they're, they they celebrated. Here's another picture of them sneaking through underground. Here I had this one here that there were three G's that were all J's. <laughs> Their last names are G, but they're all Jesuits. And this this is what I picked up from uh, some of them. They said they were all G's, but they were all J's. Um, Garnett was the leader of the Jesuits uh, in uh, England at the time, and he had, uh, he was probably, there's no doubt about it, he taught uh, Greek and Hebrew in uh, Rome, and then they sent him back to England, and he was in charge of the Jesuits, but he was always undermining, and uh, he, he always came out smelling like a rose, but I think it was a few years before this they caught him, and he did get out. The guy that was with him was executed, but he got away. Uh, not got, got away. Uh, because of his um, defense, they, they couldn't put anything on him. And he claimed the same thing this time, but they, he couldn't get away with it. Um, Gerard and Greenway, these two men escaped. I believe on the next one here. Yeah, uh, Tessimone and uh, Greenway escaped the country. But Garnet was um, captured and executed. And there, I think there were three more Jesuits that got out of there. And, and, and other priests, we don't know how many, uh, caught a boat and went uh, to mainland of Europe. Um, oh yeah, the gunpowder plot is sometimes called the Jesuit treason. 
But they don't like that, and they say, this is not true. This is Protestants' propaganda. But uh, yesterday, we also dealt with the um, Spanish Armada. And the point that I was making, that if the Spanish Armada had been successful, or if this gunpowder plot had been successful, England would have come under the control of Spain, and we would not, we would not be a Protestant nation today. The King James Version would not be translated. That's right. We, we would be Catholic. Yes, this is, this is the seriousness of this thing. And uh, when the Armada came, you know, they, uh, the Pope was behind this. He gave, he gave some money, not a lot, but he gave them enough money to do some of the things they wanted to do. And he said, once you land in England, I'll give you more money. But they never made it. Had they landed in England, I think they would have captured uh, England. But they went to Holland, because remember the, the Holland people were, the northern part of Holland uh, went with the Reformation. They were Protestant. The southern part was still Catholic. And the Spanish, which was the greatest nation on earth at the time, they were trying to put down Protestants. And so they had a tremendous fighting force there in Holland. And the Armada was to go over there and pick them up and then ferry them over to England. While they were there in the middle of the night, the winds came up from England that way. And the English had what they called fire ships. They set them on fire and ran them into the, into the uh, ships of Spain. And these men panicked. Some of them were able to pick their anchor up, but many of them said, we can't even do that. So they cut their, they cut their anchors and uh, took off. They went up, this, uh, up into the North Sea, and they were going to go around England, uh, Scotland, and come, come down the other side. And they got thrown into the rocks of uh, north of Scotland, and uh, Hebrew, what, there's, there's, pardon me? Thank you, yes. They were, they were uh, they're a ridge of, um, of islands, rocky islands, and almost all of the armada was destroyed. That was what broke the back of the power of, uh, of uh, Spain. But had it succeeded, uh, England would have been Spain, and we would be Spain. God had to have had his hand in that. And he had to have the, his hand in this uh, gunpowder plot also. And uh, here, this is, the, this is the only picture I have of this man, <clears throat> but he, Henry Garnett, who uh, led the Jesuits there in, uh, in, in uh, England, now, we looked at this also, America and Adventism, 1776, the Declaration of Independence, 1789, the Constitution, 1791, the Bill of Rights, and 1844 was the third angel's message. I believe that God provided this nation so that this message could go to the world. God, God chose it, I believe he chose it in eternity. And, uh, and I think the enemy knew that. And he was trying to confound it. Even today, I've been reading material because Columbus was a Catholic, and they said that he discovered America, which he did not. He discovered what we know today as Dominican Republic. And the, the, the Catholics went to Central America and, uh, and Southern, and then the English Protestants came to North America. But the, the Catholics had, had evangelized uh, Florida, parts of Louisiana, part of Arizona, and southern Texas, and part of uh, California. And to this day, they're saying that the United States really should be a Catholic nation. 
And I've, I've seen writings on this thing, and I thought, wow. But uh, it may someday, but... Uh, by the way, how many, how many uh, are on the Supreme Court? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And there may be more before we're over with. Now, we looked at a timeline of events also from 1517 to 1844. Uh, Protestant Reformation officially began at this time. This is when Luther was on trial at Worms. And uh, he, he pled for liberty of conscience for himself. Uh, 1529, well, actually 1526, the government, King Char Emperor Charles, gave the princes the ability to choose their own religion, either Catholic or Protestant. And so by, but by 1529, they weren't getting enough Protestants, so they, they uh, called them in, called the princes in, and they said, uh, we're taking away what we voted in uh, 1526. And just a handful of princes said, no, we're not going to go that route. And that's where we get the idea of protesting or Protestantism uh, from that time. And uh, then we have 1545 was the Council of Trent that lasted for a number of years. And this was geared to reform Catholicism, but also to fight Protestantism. Um, 1572 was the St. Bartholomew Massacre in Paris and, and in France. And from that, the Huguenots were the ones that were under fire. And they went to several nations, um, Switzerland, Germany, Holland, and the United States, in England and the United States. Wherever they went, they improved the nations that they were at. In fact, here in the United States, many, many of our presidents, in fact, the last one, I think, uh, Gerald Ford, who comes from here, from, uh, he, he had... Uh, that bloodline in him. I don't know if he was full, uh, but George Washington, I think, was a, was a full-blooded uh, Huguenot. And there were several presidents. Uh, Grant, I think, was another one. I think Grant, but I'm not sure on that one right now. It's been a while since I've read about them. But um, anyhow, then they, uh, they, they, some of them went to Holland, and they supported Holland. Holland became the next great uh, navigation and supplier of the world at that time. They outstripped England. Well, England was, was still not a, a major player, uh, but Spain, they, out, they outdid Spain by uh, building ships and then going to the um, Far East to pick up spice and, and things, things of this nature. And, uh, and, they, and it was from a Protestant standpoint. Uh, then 1588 was the Spanish Armada, and then 1604, the Protestant Je uh, King James Bible, 1605, the gunpowder plot, and then 1611, the King James Version was finally finished. But it would have been destroyed had that plot uh, carried through. And then we, we come to the uh, 1611 when the Protestants, oh, uh, that was yeah, finished. 1620, the pilgrims came to the United States, and uh, seven, we talked about this uh, Declaration of Independence and also the Constitution, Bill of Rights, 1798, the papacy was wounded, and then uh, 1804 and 16, Bible societies, English and uh, American. And 1844, God's final work begins with the cleansing of the sanctuary. And this is yet future. <laughs> now, that's pretty much of a thumbnail sketch of what we did yesterday.
Want to go to chapter? Yes. I just, maybe just a little bit off topic, but I was uh, reading something a while back about um, what they call the black pope. Is there any such a thing? Yes. Okay. Yes. Is he above the pope that they have? How does that work? We don't know for sure. Uh, I think he is. See, he's, uh, he's a Jesuit. This is what they call the black pope. The reason they call they got you'll notice that the resident pope usually always dresses in white. The black pope always, usually dresses in black. And we have a Jesuit sitting there today in the, in the throne room of Rome. He had to get permission from the black pope in order to become a white pope. So it's under the, it was under the control of, the, of this man. And it's absolute uh, obedience. They have, in fact, Loyola said that, um, he said, I'm like a dead man, a cadaver. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and they have to take that kind of vow. <clears throat> they don't, orig- uh, not, uh, not in the beginning, but as time goes on, they have to, they have to come to this place. Mm-hmm. And uh, each one is a spy on someone else. So everybody, everybody uh, reports to a s- central figure that figure sends to another higher level and it finally gets back to the black pole. But probably right. nobody knows who he is, is that right? Oh yeah, no, they know who he is. Oh, oh yeah, know. I've seen pictures of him. Oh. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I've seen see, both uh, the, the Pope that's in power now yeah. and that man standing, talking, shaking hands, you know, that type of thing. So yeah, he's, he's not, uh, <clears throat> he's, what he does behind the scenes is what, he, that's what his business is, but he, he is out in the open, so yeah. How is yeah. he elected? What? How is he appointed? Uh, usually from the Jesuits themselves. Or that's the way it has been. I don't know what they're doing now, but I think so. Because they had uh, the former one just died here about uh, within the last 10 years, I think it is. And, uh, and this, this guy came. He's smiling a lot. You know, he looks like he's a nice guy. <laughs> but, pardon me? Oh, okay. Um, let's, go to, let's go to Revelation uh, 17. We're going to get into the into the Babylons a, a little bit anyhow uh, today. Um, there, I think I mentioned earlier that there were the two things that Protestants agreed on during the Reformation. One was that the Antichrist was the papacy, and they believed in Daniel and Revelation. And then uh, the other was on justification by faith. Even though they disagreed on many things, they were solid on these two points. And uh, chapter 17 brings in two segments of Babylon. Um, in verses 1 and 2, it talks about the judgment of the harlot. And then uh, we drop down to verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And when, uh, when Adventists looked at this, they said, if, that's, if she's the harlot, Babylon the Great is the harlot, then her daughters must be apostate Protestantism. And that's it was 1840, probably, oh, maybe... In the 1840s, after the disappointment of 44, uh, one of the Advent believers 
said that uh, Protestantism had become Babylon. And they used this, but it was because they rejected the, the uh, message of 1844. It began before that and continued after, afterwards. So, and we'll talk about the daughters uh, probably tomorrow. The word Babylon is a Greek form of the word Babel. And Babel means the gate of God. Babe means gate. El is the name of God in Hebrew. And the Greek simply translated as Babylon. Um, now it's interesting that the Church of Rome says they are the only church and that's the only way you can be saved. And they've got all the way from either 12 or 1300s uh, up to this very day. Pope Pius, not Pius, uh, Benedict, he reiterated what they had believed, that you can only get to heaven through the Catholic Church. Nobody else can. Um, <clears throat> I was raised a Catholic, and I've still got Catholic friends, and there's some, I've, <clears throat> I had some wonderful nuns as teachers and priests, uh, tremendous people. Um, but we were told as a kid, we could not go to a Protestant wedding or even a funeral. <laughs> we could invite the kids, you know, to come to our, our way, to things that we were doing, but we could not go to them. And I asked a nun one time, I said, you know, I've seen some of these old Protestant women, and they look to me like they're saints. <laughs> and, and the, the um, sister said, well, she said, they might, God might allow them in, but it was almost like it was an accident. <laughs> it was slipped by to get in. <laughs> but but I, could saw, I, I saw some tremendous uh, people that were, I thought were Christian, but, but uh, uh, today they still hold that. There are many Catholics who don't believe it, but the hierarchy does. Um, the, uh, I want to do a little bit with, uh, there's three things, there's three the little horn power of Daniel 7, the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians <clears throat> chapter 2, and the harlot beast of chapter 17 of Revelation. These were all a unifying factor among all the Protestants. And I'm going to show some things here that will verify this, or at least part of it. The little horn with the big mouth uh, was, they said, it was the Antichrist, it was the papacy. In the... Um, have you ever heard of the Nuremberg Trials, Second World War? <clears throat> Nuremberg was what they called a free city. And I don't remember when it became that. It was probably in the 13 or 1400s. <clears throat> By six, the 1600s, they had sided for Protestantism. And they did something here. Um, they built the city hall. And as you look at the... Uh, pictures or statues on the walls. This is one of them. And, uh, and here's another one. And we'll get in a little more detail a little bit later. But uh, this is a picture of Rome and uh, the beast of the little horn on the right. We'll take a look at this a little close up also of it. And uh, they believe this was the Antichrist. And then also Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 the man of sin was the Pope. You notice here, he's got angels, uh, bronze or brass, uh, copper, whatever, angels on either side. So he's, he pretends to be God himself, and so he's got to have some cherubim. <laughs> so he's got them he's got there, sits in them some of the time. 
Uh, and then, of course, the one we looked at earlier, the scarlet beast, scarlet robed beast uh, was the papacy. They were united on these, on these points. Now, the beast of Daniel 7, and we'll go back to that. Uh, there are many who believe the beast of Daniel are either in the past or going to be in the future. And Adventists, I think, are, we're about the only ones, and there's some, there's some individuals who are saying that, that uh, as we believe, who they are or what it is. But uh, people are either look, pointing backwards or they're pointing to the future for the future Antichrist to come. And so they're, they, they're not historicists, they're futurists. And uh, so in uh, Nuremberg, Bavaria, Bavaria in Germany, at the square, they have an old town hall that was built in 1616 with impressive doorways. And here they are. There, there are three of them along this line. By the way, there was a, uh, some admins were over there, and they were asking, picture, asking questions of people that came. They said, what do these things represent? They didn't get a, an answer from anyone that was true. They had pro college professors. They had people on the street, different ones. They said, even the guide says, Oh, I don't. He said, I don't have any idea what what it was about. <laughs> but they were all they were all dealing with Daniel seven or Daniel, yeah, Daniel seven primarily and, ch and chapter two. Um, on the left, you can't you can't see it here, but I'm going to do some. Uh, we'll get a little closer. Uh, on the left, which left <laughs> is Nebuchadnezzar and the winged lion, Cyrus the Great, Medo Persia, and then yeah, here it is here yeah so. Um, and then Cyrus there, and then in the middle, it's a, another statue of justice and mercy uh, in this one. Then on this one, this is the one in particular interest to us, Alexander the Great and the four-headed leper. And then you have uh, Julius Caesar of Rome and the nondescript beast with the ten horns. Um, this is a little more a close-up. Well, this is the one on truth and error. Here it is a little closer. Nebuchadnezzar and the winged beast, the, the uh, eagle. And then we have Cyrus, the great of Medo-Persia, the bear with the three ribs in its mouth. And then we come to this one, um, Alexander on the one side and Julius Caesar on the other in the nondescript beast. And, uh, this, is, and this is the ten-horned one, beast with that little horn coming up. And uh, this was, if you hear Protestants say, um, we don't know, or we believe it's sometime in the future, the Protestants of old did not believe that. They believed just as we do. In fact, we got the information from them. We didn't invent the wheel. The only thing, the only thing that we've contributed to Christianity is the sanctuary message. That's all. Everything else we've gotten from someone else. These pictures you showed, the first one was at the farthest door, the next one was in the middle. Yes, yeah, and there are three different uh, doorways. Yeah, and they were they were set in stone. That's, that's what I really like. And they were not bombed out in the uh, Second World War. <laughs> uh, there were other things, other uh, buildings that were bombed out, but not this one. In the basement of this thing was a torture changer a chamber when it was uh, in Catholic hands. And you can't go down there and look at it anymore. <clears throat> um, I was in northern Italy and going through a museum, a torture chamber museum. And I was taking pictures, and I became furious. And I stopped taking pictures. I said, I'm not going to take 
picture of this nonsense anymore, but horrible things that they had invented to torture people. And some of them were uh, in such a way so that uh, it would lengthen the amount of time for a person to die, just so they could suffer. Terrible thing. Just, I was angry uh, uh, looking at that crazy stuff. But uh, the devil is a devil-inspired. So here, this is, they believe this was the Antichrist. Now, because of the confusion of tongues at the Tower of Babel, Babylon is now understood to be religious confusion. And it, we can see it in politics, too. There's uh, the same. Here's the Tower of Babel, or a drawing of it, that they think it looked like. And have you ever seen the Parliament building in uh, the European uh, Parliament building? Huh? Uh, some, I don't know who did this. Uh, they, uh, <clears throat> I put these together, but I've seen pictures of it. And there are Protestants who are saying, hey, <clears throat> this, is the, <laughs> this is the Tower of Babel. Here's another, another picture from a different angle. But, uh, but anyhow, coming back to this now, in, um, in this beginning of the falling away of the papacy, uh, actually started probably about 300. And then by 538, the um, Justinian had given... The beginning of papal supremacy lasted for 1260 years. And the protest of the, not only the princes, but of the religious aspect, uh, the Protestantism, uh, called for Trent. Trent had to do something with what they were doing. And so out of that came, now, uh, if, you read the, if you read the Council of Trent's canons on justification by faith, these were written and pushed by Jesuits. We know who they were. You familiar with this? Yeah. The, uh, and I've got, I've got the statements uh, dealing with some of this stuff. Um, when uh, the, the Church of Rome knew, and it was about ready to fold up because of justification by faith and who the Antichrist was from the Protestant standpoint. And so they scrambled to deal with justification by faith, but out of that same meeting, or about that same time, they hired, or they told some of their Jesuit scholars to take the heat off on the, on the, on the Antichrist. And so the one that we're interested in right now is Ribera. He says the Antichrist is in the future. And he took the seven years prophecy, the last seven years of the 490 weeks of uh, Daniel 7, moved it forward to get the heat off the papacy. And Today, we find that most Protestants and Catholics teach that the 70th week of Daniel is separate and has been separated from the other 69 weeks. The Catholic teaching is that where the end time seven-year tribulation comes from, this is where it actually comes from. The Protestants fought this. There were two of them. There was another man by the name of Elkazar, and he was saying that uh, the Antichrist had already come sometime in the past. Nero, for instance, would have been one. Or would have been the major one. And that argument, well, both, neither of those arguments really penetrated Protestantism for 200 years. They fought tooth and toenail to keep it out. But at the end of that time, the liberal wing of Protestantism took Elkazar's position, saying that the Antichrist was way in the past and, all, and the Bible's prophecies were fulfilled, some of them by uh, 70 AD, no, nothing after that. But the futurists are the ones that became the most popular. 
And your fundamentalist movement in uh, Protestantism, they grabbed the futurist position of Ribera, and then there began a fight between liberals and conservatives over who the Antichrist is, and whether in the past or is it future. Both, neither, and both of them were using good Catholic arguments. <laughs> They're still doing it today. It has never changed. Adventism, there's one group of, of uh, Baptists in England, and I think we're the only ones that are what we call historists. And, uh, and we're dealing with futurism, even today within the church somewhat. You had a thought? In the book of Daniel, Daniel was speaking to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two, he says, the dream is certain. Yeah. Interpretation thereof, sure. Yeah, yeah. And then sometime after that, Nebuchadnezzar rearranged the chronological That's interpretation. Right. So yeah. he was like, the, the book of Daniel sets by its own information the historicist view, mm -hmm. chronological in sequence. Mm -hmm. And it was attacked in the very time when the book of Daniel was being written. Yeah. So that, yeah. to me, that's like that's tremendous internal evidence that the historic view is right mm -hmm. because Daniel too is so plain historically. Yeah, and that's the prototype for all the rest of Daniel. Some of the arguments that we're hearing today came out of uh, probably what would the year would have been? Uh, oh, let me see, it would have been in the trying to think of the year. Uh, there was a pagan who was alarmed at the uh, inroads that Christianity was making in the early days. And he said, I've got to figure out where their teaching, their major teaching is coming from, and attack that. And he chose the book of Daniel. And he did it especially on the time prophecies. And it's, his arguments are being used to this very day to, to overthrow that. He wrote, I think, 14, 14 uh, books on the book of Daniel, especially on the time elements, chapter 9, chapter 7, 8, and, and that sort of thing. And so that's still going today. Um, but uh, so here, this is the, the 490 years uh, split up. Christ being crucified in the middle of the last week and um, 31 AD, according to futurism, that last week has moved out of there. And Christ is covered up. They're saying that it is not Christ, that because it's called, it's called Messiah the Prince, but the word Messiah means the anointed one, and they said this could be a, a, a secular prince. It, it isn't Christ. So it wasn't Christ that died in, uh, in the last verse. And that's part of their argument today. But this came out of, Catholic, out of Catholicism. And um, so what they have is the gap theory. And this is a theory of better than 2,000 years now. And the rapture theory came out of that. You have three, three uh, ideas of the rapture. You've got the pre-trib on the beginning. The church is going to be raptured out. Don't have to worry about any tribulation. Then you've got another group called the mid-tribs. And they say, no, the church has got to go through three and a half years of tribulation. Then it's going to be zapped out. And the others say, no, it's going, to, it's going to last a full seven years. So they're arguing over which point of view is true on that. And none of them are true. It's all Catholic theology. It's amazing. Um, in the, uh, so the in, in, uh, historicist and the futurist systems are they're not compatible in any sense of the word. Um, they're, they're claiming that 
the one who we believe is Christ, they're saying he's the Antichrist. And uh, uh, so they've, they've completely covered that up. Now, the gap theory uh, lasts about uh, uh, 2,000 years. And the other day we were talking about the 1260-year period. It falls in that gap period. So if there's a gap there, <laughs> you, you leap over the 1260 years of the papacy. Yeah. If they don't think it's Christ, how do they explain the raising from the dead on the third day? The, the which? How do they explain the raising of the dead on the third day? If they, they don't believe that was Christ. Yeah. Well, they how don't. Do they, how do they explain that? They do believe that Christ died there somewhere, but they don't have the date. Uh, they have the, the first part of the 70 week prophecy, they accept up until the point of the crucifixion. And they say Christ comes sometime after that, but or came sometimes after that, but we don't know exactly what the time was. So they say what Christ died on the cross. Well, that's what they're denying when they're using this this uh, scenario. Yeah. So they're still uh, they believe he died, but not according to the scripture. But the words of Jesus himself, when he uh, started his um, his public ministry in Mark one verses fourteen and fifteen, he says the time is fulfilled. Repent and believe the gospel. And the only time that was available that matched anything close to Christ was the 70-week the, uh, prophecy of Daniel 9. That's the only thing he could have been referring to. And uh, some, some uh, don't, don't handle that at all. But, uh, <clears throat> but it's still true. So here you've got 2,000 years, and, uh, and you have uh, mostly Protestants are talking about the 2,000 years. By the way, I heard an Adventist preacher just, I don't know if it was on the way up here or what, it was on the radio, and he said that the that the Jews, after 70 A.D., they were scattered, and that God would have to bring them together and put them in Palestine again uh, to be a nation before Christ comes. And so they point to uh, 1948 as the restoration of Israel in uh, uh, as a fulfillment of prophecy, and it's bogus. It is bogus. <laughs> There's some, yeah, this was an Adventist preacher. And I was amazed as I listened to some of this stuff. Because what's happened here, uh, they haven't bought into the whole theory but, uh, of this, but the gap theory, uh, most of the evangelicals believe that today. They, they, I, I, you say, they leapfrog over the, over the last week, yes. Do they give any cause for that? Do they give any cost? Do they give any reason for why they believe in the gap? I mean, is there in the what in, in the gap? I mean, they created the gap, but what did they give? Oh, okay. And then and the argument, the Adventists as, as well, but all, all evangelicals say that that gap period is the time of the church. At the end of the time of the church, the time that what they call uh, time of the Gentiles. It's a Bible verse that they use. But what license do they do they have? What reason do they give for even creating that gap? Well, it came out of the Catholic Church, but they popularized it, and uh, uh, the reasoning is that Jesus said that when the when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, in Luke, I think, and in uh, Matthew, where he mentions that, and so they latch onto that, and they say that's the time, that 2,000 period, uh, the gap period is, uh, is for the time of the Gentiles. 
when that's finished, and then the, many believe uh, 1948 was the time, and so God's prophecies are being directed to Jerusalem. That's why our State Department, everything is geared to the restoration of Israel. And I'm not opposed to having, I think they should have a country. I don't have that problem at all. But it's not a fulfillment of prophecy. That's what I'm saying. It looks like it might be, but it's not. And we've got, we've got Advents as well as Evangelicals are more geared to geography than spiritual Israel. The argument hangs on two, two points, either geography, Jerusalem, that is over there, or the spiritual Jerusalem in heaven. Chapter 4 of Galatians is very clear on that. Yes. Well, it's, it's, it's a round figure. In fact, it would be actually longer than uh, the 2,000 years, but it, it's a ballpark figure. No, no, yeah, yeah. From the time of Christ uh, forward. Yeah. See, the, th the thing is that what they're believing... No, no. It could be 3,000 if the Lord doesn't come. <laughs> It'd still be, still be the gap. But uh, the, um, I, I was in uh, Jordan uh, uh, for, uh, for a while. We went to uh, Israel and we couldn't go. We had to have a piece of paper stamped other than passport to get back into Jordan. And uh, I met a man, in uh, an Arab Christian, Protestant in Jerusalem, at a wedding. And he had a brother in Amman, Jordan, and he wanted me to take some money with him, with me. And I said, I can't do that. And it was, it was illegal to do so. And we had to cross no man's land when we came from Jordan into Israel. And you had machine guns facing each other with men behind them. <laughs> and we had to walk between them. I mean, we had, had no fear of it. And they didn't stop me. They didn't ask me any questions other than, you know, place of origin and that type of thing. But I think my wife got stopped, if I remember correctly. And there were some of the women that they discussed some things with. But, so we got into Israel. And then when we were coming out, this guy said, oh, I, I need to get money to him. And I said, I, said, I can't. It's, it's illegal. I can't do it, according to your laws. And he said, well, would you come to my house and stay overnight with us? He said, I'll, I'll take you down to the River Jordan where you can catch the bus and go back. And I said, sure. I thought it would be a good experience. So <clears throat> we walked up to his house, and there was bullet holes on the frame of the door. <laughs> and he wanted me to see those, I'm sure. And then... Uh, uh, he started explaining. He said, uh, this, was, this was a scare tactic by the military, the uh, Israeli military. And uh, he said, they still do it. They still come over and, and give us a hard time. And at night, we slept on the roof of the house. And uh, every, I think everybody did. And we could hear conversations going on in different housetops. <laughs> and uh, it was amazing. And, but in the middle of the night, we saw a tremendous amount of fireworks coming out of Israel. They were shooting rockets and things like that out of the air. Just a lot of noise just to keep people on edge. And they had to put up with this all the time. And I, I told him something that jarred him. Because I said, uh, I, I do not believe that what we're seeing today in Israel is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. He said, you don't. I said, no, I don't. And he said, what do you believe? And so I told him some things that I believed. He says, man, I've never heard of this from, from anyone, any American especially. Mm -hmm. And he said, I want you to meet a man that came out of, uh, out of Israel during the 
it must have been the 67 war, year war or something. And he'd been a businessman, had several outdoor um, restaurants. And he only had one. He had one there in Jericho. Wonderful man, just as, again, a Christian. And I shared with him what I believed. And they were just blown away that I didn't take sides with, uh, with Israel. And I'm not opposed to Israel, not, not at all, but I am opposed to what's happening in the United States. The push of finances, military power, and all of that that's uh, directed to... Our, our whole State Department is geared that way. And there are many others, the politicians are in that. And, uh, but anyhow, we had, a, we had a wonderful time together, prayed together, they, they appreciated it. They said, we're really glad there's someone that thinks that, thinks not, that everything's not right over here. <laughs> but, uh, but it's still going on. I mean, the people are, are uh, under pressure. Uh, Can I ask yeah. How do you view Christ's statement that, that uh, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. How do you see that prophecy? Well, there was a switch. In chapter 11 of Daniel, verse 22, I believe it is, talks about the prince being broken. That's Christ. Okay. After that, you have a change from Israel. Christ is the true Israel. In uh, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I have brought my I have brought Israel out of Egypt. Well, I'm sure it, it certainly points back to what happened, but Matthew quotes that verse and says, with Christ, I have called my son out of Egypt. So he is, Christ is Israel. And every one of us who's united to Christ are Israelites, spiritual Israelites. And coming, I mentioned Galatians 4 before. In fact, maybe we ought to read it because... It compares the Jerusalem that now is as under the old covenant. And the new Jerusalem, which is in heaven, is the new covenant. The Jerusalem which now is in bondage with the children. Yes, yes. And that's that's what's happening today. By by zeroing in on uh, on this very thing. Um, Let's see. Yeah, Galatians. Um, If I can find it here. Galatians chapter 4, when, uh, beginning with verse, uh, probably verse 20, 24, he talks about, these two are symbolic, he's talking about the women, about Sarah and Hagar. These are sim- symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So Paul makes a distinction between that. In chapter 2 of uh, Romans, the last couple of verses, he said uh, um, a Jew is not one in the flesh, is one in the spirit. You've been born again, you, uh, that type of thing. And so the argument today is over who is spiritual Israel or geography. <laughs> That's where the argument is today. So really, the evangelical movement is supporting a, a, a Jerusalem which is abolished. Absolutely. Absolutely. Based on that statement of religious Absolutely. And they can do no other because they're under the old covenant. So do you think the, uh, you think, uh, the papacy will reestablish itself someday? I don't know. I don't know. Some say, well, it doesn't matter to me whether they do or not. Yeah. But, uh, it's not a fulfillment of prophecy. It may, well, yeah, have, I know, it may appear to be, thinking, yeah. 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 The, uh, um, 
the the time of the Gentiles. Let's let's go to let's go to. In fact, I think we touched on this the other day in Revelation chapter eleven, where um, uh, it talks about the ta- the tabernacle being measured, and it has to do with heaven, but also God's people here on the earth. Uh, verse beginning with verse one. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. The next verse says, I will give power to my witnesses, two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's the 1,260-year period. And it was the, the papacy are the ones who are called the Gentiles. They're trampling down God's people for 1,260 years. So this is the time of the Gentiles. And I would say if there's an end to it, it would have been uh, 1798. But it's going to come back again. But the message of the Advent message of 1844 was the fulfillment of God's promise of what He would do of true Israel, cleansing of the temple, the heavenly temple, cleansing His people here on the earth. Yeah. We went into this. Before. I, I, I shared with you guys. Was it yesterday? I was talking about this chapter. I want to share with some of you. Some of you weren't here. Uh, when I was studying, I was locked up in a county prison. The man was thrown in on a Saturday night, drunker than the Lord. And uh, the next day he started zeroing in on me about studying the Bible. I thought anybody that read the Bible was out of the, something was wrong with their minds, you know. But he kept after me every day, every day. Let's study. So we did. We, and when we did the, the bullpen, where we used to gamble and swear and lie, whatever I wanted to do out there, uh, it, people seemed it looked like they were raptured because nobody would come in. And, uh, but we started studying. This guy had studied, Ad, no, not Adventism, he'd studied uh, Mormonism, um, uh, Jehovah's Witness. He was studying spiritualism at the time. And he was trying to instruct me in the scriptures. I didn't know beans about anything, <laughs> but he liked to study Revelation. When we got into chapter 11, he scared the daylights out. <laughs> he talked about, the, uh, about these two uh, prophets. He didn't know what they were, but I, in my own mind, I interpreted and I said to myself, <clears throat> I'm going to watch, because at that time there was uh, some fighting going on in Eastern Africa and the Middle East. And I said to myself, well, I don't want to you know, get too serious about this stuff right now. <laughs> when I see a couple of prophets rise up and then they're killed, they lay in the streets for three and a half days, then they're going to be raised up and go to heaven. I said, when I see that, I'm going to jump in under the wire and become a Christian. <laughs> but thank God he didn't let it go of me. Every night for some nights, and this guy never told me a thing about salvation. He didn't know it. Every night I would pray and talk to God, and uh, the Lord was impressing him to make a decision. And I was, I was afraid because uh, I was damned if I did and damned if I didn't. That was the thinking in my mind because I was a lost man if I made the wrong choice. That was my, my thinking. The decision was on this. Either marry as my mediator and the Church of Rome as my rule of authority, or Christ was my, was my mediator and savior, and the Bible was my rule of authority. It was as clear as a bell to me, but I wrestled with it for three days and three nights. And at the end of that time, I said, God, it appears to me 
that Christ ought to be my Savior and that the Bible should be my rule of authority. I'm going to accept it by faith. <laughs> A load just peeled off my back. <laughs> I never thought, felt such an experience since I was from the time I was a little kid. No. And, Yes, that's the only way that he no he didn't know anything about his story. I mean he he had a general idea, but he didn't have the foggiest idea what it was about. But God God was instructing me in some of this stuff. It's amazing. Then I started asking questions: Who, what church follows the Bible, Old and New Testament, exclusive of anyone? And the only answer I get was this crazy Adventist, <laughs> and that that got me going, you know, because I remember and while I was sitting in that. Uh, jail, I remember uh, in high school, there was a girl, we were the same age, and uh, we used to dance and smoke and drink, you know, and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, she stopped doing that. And the kids just, other students just really gave her a rough time. Not so much to her face, but behind her, always talking about it. I never did. It made such an impression on, the, on me, the change that took place in her. She became a Seventh-day Adventist. Mm -hmm. The only thing I knew about Adventists was, number one, they were mixed up on the day of worship. <laughs> they were going to church on Saturday rather than Sunday, and they, and they didn't eat pork. That's all I knew. But when I got to study, the Lord brought that girl, that girl to my mind. And she had left the church by that time. And so when I met her, uh, uh, sometime later, I shared with her, I said, you know, when I was going through my turmoil, I said, God brought you to my mind. I saw it as clear as a bell that you were there. She's, she's a Lutheran yet, but she's, I'm hoping that she'll take a, yeah, take a stand. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyhow, that, I don't, that's the second time I've told that, so I better get off it. <laughs> but, uh, but anyhow, the, um, coming to the futurist interpretation again, this is what Rome used to counter the Protestant position. And leaping over the, that papal era of dominance, it crowds the Antichrist into a small period of time just before the end. That's that seven-year period, rather than 1260 years. And uh, that's what's happened. So the last week of the 70-week prophecy was made to leapfrog over the 1260-year papal persecutions of the Dark Ages. They had to do something to get the heat off uh, from what the Protestants were doing. So in the uh, the so-called gap between the 69th and 70th week, there is a 1260-year prophecy that fits in there. And this is a drawing of the man who was behind that, which is uh, Ribera, Francisco Ribera. Um, so now futurism, coming from the Council of Trent, entering into Protestantism. We have Ribera, the time of the Re uh, Reformation, Lucunza, who was a Jesuit priest in South America, he had two things that were, I mean, he was right about the second coming of Christ. He made predictions about it. Wrote a book on the second coming of Christ about 1848. But he was a futurist. And uh, he wrote about that. So many got, uh, were, were uh, sucked in by that, by him. Then Edward Irving in England, he was um, believing that Christ was coming sometime in the 1840s. But he went into the Pentecostal movement. He, he was a Presbyterian, then became a Pentecostal. And uh, another man by the Norton got information from him. Then there was Mary MacDonald in the 1830s, about the time when Miller was preaching. And uh, she saw in vision two steps to coming of Christ. And that's where the secret rapture came from. It cannot, 
I've listened to people, those guys arguing between themselves which is right, mid, uh, the pre-trib, mid-trib, or the post-trib. And uh, they cannot go by, from their own arguments, they can't go past uh, 1800. I don't think they go back uh, 18, the 1830s. And, uh, but Mary MacDonald was the one. And then from her came uh, Darby. He brought that co those concepts in the United States. And then one who popularized this whole thing is C.I. Schofield. You've probably heard of the Schofield Bible around 1900. So did Darby pick up the information from Mary MacDonald? Yeah, and, that, and Irving, that, that whole group, yeah, futurism, yeah. So then Schofield picked it up with Darby? Darby, primarily, yeah. He probably got more information, but Darby was the one that, I think he came to Canada first and then the United States. And, uh, and he, I think he was with the, uh, what, what they call the Brethren, if I remember correctly. And, uh, but that's, and then it become, Schofield popularized this. And Schofield was an unconverted man. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but he, his uh, Bible became popular. In fact, all, the footnotes in his Bible are all with uh, futurism, especially Daniel, uh, Daniel and Revelation. Um, and people just have fallen from that. And then uh, Tim LaHaye, have you heard of him? He's the most popular one now with that series, Left Behind, exactly. Thousands and thousands of books and now videos that have been sold worldwide. And this is the thing, you've probably seen signs on cars or maybe on a post, uh, you know, I've seen some on cars that, that in, uh, in the case of the rapture, this, this vehicle is going to be unmanned. <laughs> it's just, it's amazing how, the, how this has taken, taken hold. I believe it's Tim LaHaye's cousin. I think it's his cousin, is an Adventist preacher. Really? Uh, he was in the Michigan Conference. Huh. Oh, I can't think of his name right now. Uh -huh. But he was, at, he was a pastor of the Morris Church, and he was down to Hillsdale, and then he, he became the chaplain. Uh, I'm not sure where he's yeah, at now, uh -huh. but I remember him talking about Interesting. Yes. So he, and he's, you know, he's talked with him before. He's, that's what I'm thinking. That and, but he's stuck, in his, he's stuck in his futuristic. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, amazing. Yes. What's that? Oh, oh, someone trying to get in? What time is it, by the way? Three away. Oh, my, we're about out of time. <laughs> uh, um, let's see, what, let me see what else we can look at before we cl close it up. Oh, maybe this one. Um, the Jesuits were expelled by uh, Charles III in Spain, and, um, and that included South America. Um, they were expelled from Portuguese, their empire, France, and that was 1759, France in 1764, and then Sicily, Mar Malta, Parma, and the Spanish Empire, 1767. In 1773, the Jesuits received another blow when by the bull Dominus Ac Redemptor, Pope Clement XIV dissolved the Jesuit order. And he, it took him a while to do this because he knew he would die when he do it when he did it and he put it off for a few years but the the nations were pressuring him you've got to get rid of this they were so terrible what they're doing and you've got to get rid of them and so he finally did but he knew he knew the jesuits would kill him for what he did and they did they poisoned him and they had a poison at that time he suffered immensely for months um, and he, but he knew where it was coming from, and because he had crossed the Jesuits. And, and, 
What? I said too bad he didn't ask. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. But he suffered and finally, finally died. And then uh, you have a pope that came along um, who... Uh, he, this is the one that followed the one... There was a pope that was taken captive you know, during 1798. This pope uh, restored the society, the Jesuits, and um, in Catholic countries in Europe, and I believe in the United States also. John Adams had this to say. Uh, he said, shall we not have regular swarms of them here in as many disguises as only a king of the gypsies can assume, dressed as painters, publishers, writers, and schoolmasters? If ever there was a body of men who merited eternal damnation on earth and in hell, it is this society of Leola. This was the early uh, Protestants in the United States. This is one of the reasons they said we'll have no, no uh, pope or priest as leader of the religion and we'll have no king sitting on the throne politically. And uh, now, in, uh, he issued a, a condemnation of Bible studies or societies as the most abominable invention that destroyed the very foundation of religion, his own religion. <laughs> That's the reason that, they, that he uh, was fighting this. So this new era of liberty and republics had greatly diminished much of the papal power. And of course, after 1798, the papacy, whoops, let's see, the papacy strongly hated these freedoms and was continually set on destroying them and regaining its former absolute power as in the time of the Inquisitions. Then there was a secret treaty of Verona, and this was 1822, it was a pact entered into, or covenant entered into by high contracting parties, kings of Prussia, Russia, and Austria. And behind the scenes, Pope Pius VII, who was the king of the Vatican. And uh, this alliance represented movements of independence in, uh, re they repressed it. They, they, uh, France had, uh, was restoring the kingdom. They were trying to do it in Spain. Spain was, uh, had a lot of colonies in South, Central and South America. And uh, the Holy Alliance, it was started by a Russian, uh, the Russian Tsar. And, uh, and I think I mentioned yesterday, one of the, one of the uh, things that happened with the Americans was that uh, because of the, they, were, they were trying to recolonize or trying to take over what had happened, the Russians had set up a, an outpost in uh, the Northwest in Washington and they were evidently thinking about coming down the line, and the politicians said, no, there will be none of this by any, uh, any nation of Europe. They're not going to colonize, uh, and even with cent uh, Central and South America, as we'll see in a little bit here. Uh, these are pictures of the three men, uh, Alexander of Russia, uh, Clemens von Metternich of uh, Austria, and Frederick of Prussia. And then, uh, behind the scene, you have the Pope. <laughs> And you'll not see his name on any documents, but in the in the uh, correspondence between them, they mentioned him as one. Yes. Wasn't the king of Prussia usually a Protestant? Pardon me. Wasn't the king of Prussia usually a Protestant? Yes, but they did go back to Catholicism. Yeah. And this, uh, well, even if they, regardless if they were Protestant or not, they were hanging on to the king. They believed the divine right of kings. And many Protestants do the same, same thing. France, uh, Napoleon, he crowned himself king, but, uh, and he was not, a, well, he, uh, he was a Catholic, though, that's right. 
uh, in name only, but uh, um, but that was the struggle uh, there. And then uh, um, then we have what we call the Monroe Doctrine, and uh, this was the, the teaching that he gave to Congress, um, still there in, in December of 1823. It proclaimed the United States' opinion that European powers should no longer colonize the Americas or interfere with affairs of sovereign nations located in the Americas. He's talking about Central and South America. I guess I've got it here. Then he says if wars were to occur in the Americas, the U.S. would view such action as hostile toward itself. And then I've got some drawings, cartoons. Here we've got Uncle Sam dressed up as a rooster. And those are Europeans. Their Monroe Doctrine was keeping the Europeans out so that they could not come to either Central or, or South America. Here's another one where uh, Uncle Sam threw his hat over Central and South America. <laughs> and this is ours. We said, if you attack one of them, you're going to be attacking us. And we're not, because these, these people had already uh, declared their independence. And so the United States said, as long as they've made their choices, we're going to stick with them. Then here's another one. I like this one. Um, uh, here you've got the Monroe Doctrine. He draws the line in the sand, and you've got the people represent. I think the fat man represented England, but they were not involved in it. I think they were later on, but, uh, but you have the Pope in the, in the background. Uh, and uh, Monroe and the Americans said, we're drawing a line in the sand. You're not going to cross over here. And they, they pulled back. The Russians pulled back from the north, uh, northwest also. So, and then here, Teddy was sticking with the Monroe Doctrine. <laughs> and this is when Spain was attempting to, uh, uh, to uh, take over uh, Domingo. And, uh, and I think the last one that was used by uh, uh, Reagan was the, was it called the Falcon Islands, I think it was? And uh, he sent in the troops there because he said, we're, this is, this, we're going to defend them. <laughs> so that's the last time it was used. But it's still on the books. So now here, Pope Pius IX, we talked about him the other day, but look at something a little closer. Pope Pius VII mentioned this man. This pope was the longest reigning elected pope in the Catholic Church history. And I'm going to go on to the next one. He was deposed as the temporal ruler of the Papal States in the events that followed the revolutions of 1848. And this is a prayer uh, to a dead Pope. Blessed Pope Pius IX, happy 218th birthday. Your Holiness and you may continue to have the record, may you have the, the longest papacy. During his reign, he convened the First Vatican Council, 1869, which decreed papal infallibility. And, um, oh, here comes the man. <laughs> uh, his involvement during the Civil War in the United States. He, um, let me go on here, this, this next one. The Pope was the only crowned prince of the world who addressed Jefferson Davis as illustrious and honorable president, as if he was president of a legitimate gover government. In another letter, he addressed D Davis as His Excellency, President of the Confederate States of America. Um, he received an envoy from him. And I think I'm going to go down, I'm gonna, there's one I want to close with. Um, 
Okay, let me let me drop down. We may get we may come back to him later, but I've got a a um, yeah. This the Constitution of the United States guarantees liberty of conscience. He was fighting against that, and um, this is an engraving. It's entitled "The Aim of the uh, Pope Pius the Ninth," and um, this is the he's got the Constitution in his right hand and he's squashing it, crumpling it up. Then notice down here, he's trampling on the United States flag. And then he's killing the goose. He killed the, the eagle uh, with, uh, with his uh, staff. So this is what he thought. He was the one that claimed himself infallible. And his desire and the desire of every leader in Catholicism is to destroy Protestantism in America as around the world. So we're in for an interesting battle in the days ahead. And we need to understand the principles involved. And, and, uh, but we, know, we need to know Christ more than anything else. Because he's the only one that can guide us where we need to be guided. And uh, we're going to have to close with that. But uh, i got much more. But I'm <laughs> getting too long-winded. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for history, for sacred history both in the Bible and the way you've led your people, you've promised us that we have nothing to fear for the future, except as we forget the way that you've led us in the past and your clear teaching. Keep us by your grace, and may we move in harmony with your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.